Hello, and welcome to Cinema Sunday. I am your host, Candy Thomas, and each week I'm going to watch one of the 95 movies that have won an Oscar for Best Picture and tell you exactly what I think of them. Before I get too much further, you know I like to do a little bit of a current events update. I'm just hoping to preserve for future listeners some memory of what was happening at the time I recorded this episode. Former President Donald Trump must pay the entire $454 million fraud judgment against him after an appeals court judge denied his request to pause the enforcement of the fine. He offered to put up $100 million of the bond, hoping to stay the judgment, while his lawyers appealed his New York civil fraud case. But the judge said no. It's required in these types of cases to put up the full amount before the case can be appealed. The initial judgment stated that he was also forbidden to take out loans from any financial institutions registered in the state of New York, but the judge did allow for this to continue while the case is being appealed. If he fails to secure significant loans, Trump could be forced to liquidate some of his belongings to meet the bond requirements. Not sure why he doesn't just borrow the money from Jared and Ivanka. They walked out of the White House with $2 billion in their pockets, courtesy of the Saudis. The Supreme Court of the United States has agreed to hear Donald Trump's appeal, arguing that presidential immunity protects him from criminal prosecution for the charges filed against him by Jack Smith for the crimes leading up to and on January 6th. To be clear, they did throw out half of his case, and they only agreed to hear a portion of the appeal. Oral arguments are scheduled for the week of April 22nd, and depending on how long it takes the court to issue a decision— it appears that this could significantly disrupt Jack Smith's timetable of trying this case prior to Election Day. But two things are working in Jack Smith's favor. The first being that SCOTUS could have first sent this case back to the appeals court to have it retried by a full panel of 11 judges. Then, if needed, they would hear the case after that. But Smith argued there's no reason to send it back. And if SCOTUS wanted to hear the case, they could do so in an expedited manner now, which they have agreed to do. But also, this case will not fall under the Department of Justice 60-day blackout rule, which, in simplest terms, states that they won't criminally indict or issue subpoenas to a political candidate within the 60 days leading up to an election. Essentially, DOJ is not willing to potentially disrupt the outcome of an election by charging a candidate with crimes that would be newsworthy, even decision-changing, for the American voters. But in this case, these are old crimes. Donald Trump was subpoenaed, indicted, arrested, charged, and fingerprinted. The whole kit and caboodle almost a year ago. So bringing this case to trial would not impact the decision made by voters. The voters have already made up their minds, and those who are going to vote for Trump will do so no matter what. That guy could drown six-week-old puppies on live TV and his followers would still vote for him. And finally, the United States Senate earlier this week tried to protect access to in vitro fertilization after widespread backlash to a recent ruling by the Alabama Supreme Court. Senator Tammy Duckworth, a military veteran and double amputee who personally used IVF to conceive her two children, put forth a bill that would establish federal rights to fertility treatments, but it was never brought to a vote. Senator Cindy Hyde-Smith, Republican from Mississippi and seemingly a very confused pro-life advocate, objected to the measure. 
And that's all it takes in the Senate, just one person objecting to unanimous consent, and a good bill will die a quick death. This is a hot topic that shows no sign of going away. There's now a congressman who publicly stated he thought frozen embryos should be outlawed. His argument is that you can fertilize one egg and use it now, just pop it in and poof, there's your baby. We should not live in a place where laws are written by ignorant people who don't understand medicine, science, reproduction, or female anatomy. Unless you want to continue letting these fools control your right to family planning, and that includes fertility treatments, birth control, and abortion rights, I'm going to say it again. Please go vote every single time. Okay, now it's time for a movie review. I follow the same template every week, so if you're new to the podcast, here's how it works. I tell you the basic details of the movie, things like who's in it and what's it about, and of course, where you can stream it if you want to watch it. I also answer these three questions. Does it stand the test of time? Is it Oscar-worthy? And should you watch it, or is this more painful than a root canal? Just as a friendly warning, I like to give my honest assessment of these movies, and you might not always agree with me. I like to rant about the things that irritate me, and I always mix it with a heaping dose of adult language. Please be sure you listen with caution. Before we begin, I'd like to thank Wikipedia and IMDb, as they are great sources of information for all things movie and Oscar-related. So with that, let's take it away. This week's Oscar-winning film is Coda. It was released August 13th of 2021. It's directed by San Heider. It stars Amelia Jones, Troy Coster, Marley Matlin, Eugenio Derbez, and Daniel Durant. It was nominated for a total of three Oscars, and it won all three. It won for Best Picture, Best Supporting Actor, and Best Adapted Screenplay. If you want to watch it, it's only available on Apple TV. It's free if you have a subscription. Otherwise, you'll have to pay $3.99. So what is it about? The title CODA stands for Children of Deaf Adults. So you go into this knowing that this family may have different struggles than others of us face each day. Ruby Rossi, played by Amelia Jones, is the only hearing member of her family. The Rossies live in Gloucester, Massachusetts, and just like many of the other families in that area, they own a fishing boat. Although Ruby is still in high school, it's necessary for her to spend all of her spare time out on the water with her father and brother as the only hearing member of the crew. She's also counted on to be the face and voice of the business, negotiating sales and dealing with the other area fishermen. Frank and Leo are Ruby's father and older brother. They're played by Troy Coster and Daniel Durant, respectively. Leo feels a little emasculated by his sister. As the only son and the oldest child, he feels that he should be playing a more critical role in the family business. But since he's unable to communicate well enough to negotiate good selling prices for their daily hauls, Ruby is always in the middle of each important business deal. After spending early mornings out on the boat each day, Ruby attends high school, and this is not a happy place for her. She's bullied because her family members are hearing impaired, 
and it doesn't help that she often goes to school smelling like a boat full of haddock. She only has two things to look forward to at school, her best friend Gertie and Miles, the boy she worships from afar. A few minutes into the movie, Ruby discovers that Miles has signed up for choir as an elective course. And since she likes singing and believes she can at least reasonably carry a tune, Ruby signs up as well. Spoiler alert, you probably already know where this is going. Ruby can really freaking sing. And let me establish something before we get too far into the movie. Ruby is a teenager, and so it's totally predictable that she'd be embarrassed by her parents. But in Ruby's case, it's not that they're hearing impaired. It's mostly that her father often acts like a teenager himself, telling obscene stories, making lewd gestures, and seemingly doing everything possible to avoid fitting into the hearing world. He's a class clown type with an off-brand sense of humor. So it's not unusual for him to shock or embarrass those who can hear, especially his teenage daughter. In an early scene, Ruby needs to accompany her father to a doctor's visit, where he describes in sign language the unusually bothersome itching problem he has in his trousers. Frank has a very graphic communication style, which we get the pleasure of reading in the subtitles. He signs to the doctor that his nuts are on fire, like a boiled lobster claw covered with barnacles, which Ruby translates as, um, he has some itching down there. Turns out both of her parents have a severe case of jock itch, which Frank no doubt got from wearing wet clothes and then transferred to his wife Jackie via intercourse. Jackie is played by Oscar-winning actress Marley Matlin, and she's absolutely perfect in this movie. I learned something while watching CODA that I guess I never really thought about before. As a hearing person, I'm able to moderate myself. I know when I'm speaking too loudly, or I've slammed a door too hard, or I need to quiet a barking dog. But the Rossies are unable to determine when their music is too loud, or they're slamming cupboards, or that other people can hear them fart. So they're just going about their noisy little lives, and Ruby has difficulty finding peace and calm in her own home. I would have thought it would have been the opposite, like dead quiet, where she's the only one who can hear the expanse of the silence. But unfortunately for Ruby, that's not the case. For people who don't utter a word, they're really freaking loud. The first day of choir class, we have the pleasure of meeting the talented director Bernardo Villalobos, which is exactly how he tells the kids to pronounce it. He's played by Eugenio Derbez. He's the real deal, and he's not at all a softy. He expects the students to bring their very best. They practice often and must utilize his professional advice to improve their capabilities. The first couple of days, he assesses the talent, divides them into altos, sopranos, tenors. He's also trying to determine who among them might have even an ounce of talent. Ruby is very overwhelmed in the beginning. She's embarrassed that she might not be good enough. No one has ever heard her sing. No one in her family can validate for her if she's good enough or not. And this is a nice twist of theme, because normally parents push their kids into something, telling them that they're really good, even when they're not. And there are scenes in Coda where Jackie is doubting that Ruby has the talent. She even suggests at one point that Ruby has joined choir as a way to separate herself from the family. Of course, choosing to enjoy a hobby that they can't possibly enjoy with her. The Rossi family is struggling financially, and although Jackie suggests they sell the fishing boat, 
It is truly the only way that Frank and Leo think they are capable of making a living. They simply don't know how to do anything else and worry that their lack of communication skills would make it difficult in another line of work. The hits keep coming when all the fishermen are told there will be inspectors sent in by the federal government who will perform a series of ride-alongs on their boats to ensure they are all legally compliant with their practices. One day, Gertie is over at the Rossi house, and she tells Ruby how handsome she thinks Leo is. And Ruby does the typical, ooh, gross, that's my brother, you're not going to have sex with my brother. But Gertie doesn't give up so easily. She begs Ruby to teach her just enough sign language so she can tell Leo that she has the hots for him. And as she's leaving the house that day, she catches Leo in the living room and does her best to recreate what Ruby has taught her, which oddly involves her touching herself a little before she leaves the house. And that's when Leo turns to Ruby and signs, why did your friend just tell me she has herpes? (laughs) And at that moment, I thought, okay, that is fucking classic. And now I need to learn sign language. The choir is practicing for their fall concert, and Mr. V has selected Ruby and Miles to perform a duet. This means they would end up spending some time together rehearsing, because as he says it, it's in the word. A duet means you duet together. Mr. V is starting to see that Ruby can really sing, and mentions that she should audition for Berkeley College of Music, which happens to be his alma mater, and the same program that Miles is going to audition for. Of course, Ruby would love to go. But there's this little teeny tiny problem. She needs to help her family run the business. Mr. V tells her that she's a special talent. And if she feels like singing is her passion, then she needs to follow her dreams. He'll coach her for free on nights and weekends, but she has to take it seriously. He won't tolerate her wasting his time. And she doesn't exactly get enthusiastic encouragement from her family. But I think it's due to A, them not having any idea how really good she is, and B, a fear of her leaving and them struggling to adapt without her. Miles and Ruby are spending time together practicing their duet, and of course, they are starting to have feelings for each other. There's an awkward moment where he's at her house after school, rehearsing in her bedroom. And no surprise, her parents do something she finds completely unacceptable. I won't give away all the good parts, you'll have to watch for yourself. But it makes for a very uncomfortable first time that Miles meets his soon-to-be girlfriend's parents. It's also quite funny to watch Frank and Jackie try to give the kids a speech about the birds and bees in graphic sign language. With Ruby's help, Frank is able to go to a meeting of all the local fishermen to complain about all the ways they're getting screwed. They will be the ones who have to pay for those government investigators to go out on their boats with them. Plus, the buyers are paying less and less for their fish. The whole room is in agreement. They are all sick of getting squeezed. Frank and Leo seize their opportunity. They have Ruby announce that they're going to sell their own fish and bypass the current auction system. In fact, they tell everyone present, you bring your fish to us and we'll get you twice the price. Now, they may have gotten out ahead of themselves a little bit. When Frank gets home, Jackie is shocked that he would take such a chance with their livelihood. He admits he got caught up in the moment and now he's not quite sure how he'll make it work. But Leo and Ruby have been saying all along that they should sell their own fish rather than rely on a middleman anyway, so they're willing to try it. The catch here, and no pun intended, is that they are about to risk everything to start an entirely new segment of business, a fisherman's co-op, and everyone in the room knows that they can't succeed without Ruby. 
This poor girl is extended far more than anyone would expect of her. She's up every morning at 3 a.m. to go out on the boat with Frank and Leo, bringing in the day's catch before heading off to school. Then it's back to the docks to help her parents negotiate deals before going to Mr. V's house every night for rehearsal. He's coaching Ruby for both the fall concert and the college audition that she has not yet told her parents about. He taps into her teenage feelings and frustrations and gets her to take her singing to an entirely new level. And a little side note here that has nothing to do with anything, his house is to die for. It's quaint and eclectic. It has a perfect cool musician vibe. I just love every moment when we're in his house. But eventually her parents start to see that her attention isn't on the fisherman's co-op. She's constantly walking around carrying sheet music and practicing her melodies. But she's also starting to upset Mr. V with her constant tardiness and distractions. The local news does a story on the Rossi family, which helps them grow the business, but puts additional strain on Ruby, who has a falling out with Mr. V because he feels she just doesn't have the dedication it takes to be a successful singer. That is the tipping point for Ruby. She has to break it to her family that she wants to go to college. She can't be expected to stay with them forever, and it's not fair for them to expect her to. And of course, they're all stunned when she tells them it's a music school. They can't fathom that she's any good because they don't have any concept of what it sounds like to hear someone sing. They don't want her to go. They've just started a business and she can't leave now and abandon them. Plus, her dad thinks everyone in Boston is an asshole and she won't like it there. After this scene, I honestly had to pause the movie and cry for a little while. I can't imagine what it's like for a child in this situation. Ruby says that she's been interpreting for them her entire life and has never had a life of her own. She's exhausted. And this isn't the typical empty nest situation like you see with some parents that they just don't want their kids to leave home. The fact is that Frank and Jackie and Leo are people of limited communication capabilities, and Ruby leaving could legitimately place them in a perilous situation. And Ruby knows this, but she's also been put in a situation where her own happiness is at stake. This is such an emotional moment for this family, and I was struggling to get through it. The next morning, Ruby chooses not to go out on the boat with Frank and Leo, but this also happens to be the day that the government inspector is on board. She doesn't immediately realize the men are deaf. She just assumes they're being rude because she's there to spy on them. It's not until the inspector starts asking questions about the noises coming from the engine that Frank hands her a note stating that they are deaf. And unfortunately, she's not very forgiving. Meanwhile, Ruby has decided to spend the day with Miles. They go swimming and cliff jumping at the quarry. And for once, she gets to just be a normal teenager hanging out with the boy that she likes. She's getting kissed for the first time and not having any of the stress that she normally has to deal with. But back out on the boat, Frank and Leo are busy working and are incapable of hearing the radio blaring or the horns blowing from other boats. They don't realize the inspector has called the Coast Guard until their boat is being boarded by aggressive armed officers treating them like criminals. Ruby arrives home that night to discover her father's fishing license has been suspended. They are required to have a hearing deckhand, and without her there, they were breaking the law. They can't afford to hire someone else, so it's really critical that she's the one who helps them. Frank goes to a court hearing and is found to have been operating his vessel in an unsafe manner, and because he couldn't hear, he disregarded the orders of law enforcement. 
He gets fined a hefty sum, but is told he can go back out on the water as long as he meets the requirement of having a hearing person on board at all times. So you know what's going to happen next. Ruby decides college can wait. She'll stay home and help her father on the fishing boat. Or maybe not. Hold on. There's more coming. It's time for Ruby's school concert, and the auditorium is packed. The Rossi family all attend for emotional support, and it's really unfortunate they can't hear what a star Ruby is. But what happens is they start to look around the room. The movie goes silent as she and Miles are singing their duet. They want us to experience this as the Rossies are experiencing it. And of course, they can't hear her sing, but what they see are the reactions of all the other people in the audience. Some are swaying to the music, some are clapping, many are smiling, and some are even wiping tears from their faces. It's then that Jackie and Frank realize that Ruby is something special. Their daughter has a gift. And it's okay, you can pause the movie and cry a little bit more here. The next morning, Frank wakes up the whole family so they can drive to Boston and Ruby can audition for the Berklee College of Music. She's late, but her slot is still open. They forbid her family from entering the auditorium, but they sneak into the balcony to watch her anyway. Once she sees them looking down from above, she starts signing the words to the song so her family can follow along. Mr. V is there to accompany her on the piano, which boosts Ruby's confidence. The judges look above to see her family, and they quickly understand the nature of the situation, which makes them even more impressed with Ruby. But I think it was her incredible performance of Both Sides Now by Joni Mitchell that won them over. The movie ends with us finding out that Ruby got a scholarship to Berkeley. Frank and Leo have a new hearing deckhand, and the entire co-op fishing community has adapted to communicating with the Rossies. They are making friends and proving they can be successful without relying on Ruby. And then she's off to college, and I'm crying for another hour. Question one. Does CODA stand the test of time? Well, it's only a few years old, so yes, it's all still very relevant. I love the authentic feel of it. I've seen a couple other movies about Gloucester fishermen, and this matches up with everything I know about that lifestyle. You see them out on their boat, watching them pull in the nets and sorting through their catch. It all looks very accurate. The clothes they wear, the wind whipping through their hair, even their skin looks like it's a little weather-worn from the salt water and the wind. When Ruby goes to school and someone says she smells like fish, I'm thinking, yeah, of course she does. Like, I can't even smell her. But just based on the whole look and feel of it, my brain is already telling me that that's what she smells like. There are more coming-of-age movies than we will ever have time to watch, but I do think this one is special. I think it's so valuable to see honest portrayals of people who are kind and brave and empathetic enough to dedicate a significant portion of their lives to helping family members with physical or mental impairments. And this is my first glimpse into the life of Coda, and I'm glad it was such a well-told story with a character like Ruby, who was so torn between the needs of her family and the needs of herself. Question two, is it Oscar-worthy? Yes, this is the exact type of sweet, small, well-crafted movie that thrills Oscar voters. This was definitely a COVID-impacted year. The other movies nominated that year were Belfast, Don't Look Up, 
Drive My Car, Dune, King Richard, Licorice Pizza, Nightmare Alley, The Power of the Dog, and West Side Story. Out of all of these, I think Dune and West Side Story were the only ones that had significant box office numbers, both being big, sprawling remakes of really great originals. The Power of the Dog was also really good, but now that I've seen Coda, I can easily see why people would have voted for it. It's a very good movie. Troy Coster won an Oscar for Best Supporting Actor, making him the first deaf male to ever win an acting award. And he really is very good in this. Very expressive, funny, just whole body acting the entire time. And the script works well in his favor. Frank is a very unique character from start to finish. Ironically, his co-star Marley Matlin was the first ever deaf female to win an acting Oscar when she did it almost 40 years ago, if you can believe that, for Children of a Lesser God in 1986. And that win still makes her the youngest ever winner in the Best Actress category to this day. A little bit of trivia for your next cocktail party. Question three, should you watch it? Yes, please do. This is another one that I'm just kicking myself for not watching it earlier. I don't know why, but I think there was something about it that made me think I would enjoy it. But nothing could have been further from the truth. I just loved this movie. It's funny, it's sweet, it's endearing, and it made me cry like I haven't done in ages. There's just something so genuine and casual and comfortable about this family. And their daughter, despite all the issues at school, still seems to have a strong self-image. She can't change the dynamic of her family, so she chooses not to give a fuck what others think about her, and she does her best to keep moving forward. The relationship that builds between her and Mr. V is such an important one. He really manages to tap into everything she's buried over the years and teaches her to express it in her singing. So listening to her is very moving. You just want to reach out and hug her. There's nothing big or visually spectacular about this movie. It's quiet, it's well-written, it's thoughtful, and it's clever. I really did enjoy it, and I think you should watch it if you get a chance. Okay, that's a wrap. Thank you for listening. This has been episode 67 of Cinema Sunday. I'll be back next week to discuss another Oscar-winning film. Please tell your friends about this podcast. If you feel so inclined, you can like, follow, subscribe, and even post a review. That helps get Cinema Sunday heard by a wider audience. If you have a comment, a correction, or just want to tell me that I have shit taste, you can email me at cinemasunday at yahoo.com. The music for Cinema Sunday is appropriately titled So Happy. It's by Scott Holmes Music. I got it off of freemusicarchives.org, and the work is licensed under Creative Commons by NC 4.0. Links are provided in the bio, and if you happen to visit the Free Music Archive, they do take donations, so please be generous. Thanks, and see you next week.